From the journeys of belonging to blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Blackness. Today is Dr. Vilna Bashi Treitler. Vilna is professor in the Department of Black Studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara, a sociologist and visual artist, a scholar on the history of racial thought and of ethnic and immigrant groups' experiences in the United States. Vilna is the author of several books, including The Ethnic Project. Transforming Racial Fictions into Ethnic Factions, which was named to the Zora Canon in 2020 as one of the best 100 books ever written by an African-American woman. Of course, she is included among other notable authors, such as Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, and my favorite, Audre Lorde. Vilna is also the 2020 recipient of the American Sociological Association's Cox Johnson Frazier Award for Scholarship in Service to Social Justice. Outside of the classroom, Vilna's scholar activism extends to her artwork, which she has shown at local galleries and even curated for exhibitions, including the Psalms exhibition, a digital tribute to Toni Morrison for the Colored Girls Museum in Philadelphia. She's working on her forthcoming memoir, tentatively titled Schooled, which we can't wait to learn more about. Welcome, Vilna. Thank you so much. I'm really, really glad to be here. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. Scholar, activist, and artist, there are paths that we take and the processes we engage in to get us to where we are. How did you become interested in doing the work you do today? I didn't. I ended up on a path whereby discovering who I am helped me find out what my interests are. It's an alchemy of self-discovery and exposure to things. Please give us an example. When I was nine years old, I remember this clearly. People would ask, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always said, I wanted to be a scientist. I didn't know what that was. I just knew like, okay, I read a lot of books. I like books. I guess people who read books become scientists. So that's going to be me. (laughs) But then, um, so my parents decided that Christmas to get me a microscope. And I had thought, oh, I'm going to be a surgeon. I'll be a doctor. And then I was like, I don't like blood. Once I got to grad school and saw, I didn't like the way people in STEM seem to make assumptions about how the world works that just don't feel right to me. And I wanted to ask certain kinds of questions that led me to social science instead. But then I also clearly had a deep-rooted investment in social justice. So your interest in science led to your career path in the social sciences. But how did you become also interested in art? I got exposed to art. I wasn't, I think I was a natural artist, but I didn't even know it. I met at a high school reunion friends who said they saved my artwork from like seventh grade. Wow. I was like, what? (laughs) So they knew I was an artist before I knew I was an artist. (laughs) And I've just been hiding it from myself. 
You mentioned earlier that when you reflect on your journey, it's an alchemy. Please elaborate. What I mean by this alchemy of opportunity and self-discovery, it's not a straight road. It seems to be a bit circular. Most people's paths aren't necessarily linear, that Mm -hmm. they're different. I mean, there might be a common thing about, well, when one wants to look at their path from a bird's eye view, you can Mm -hmm. kind of get a sense of, well, that's the the destination I'm working towards, but it's never linear. And it seems to me, based on what you've said and described so far, that you are in part an experiential learner, just even in terms of your own personal experience. You know, it's one of those things that as a young person, you might think to yourself, well, you know, I think this is a cool idea. Then I think I kind of like this a little bit more. And we kind of sample and, you know, it's like a buffet of different things. And somehow all those different choices and activities that we engage in will lead us closer to the destination that we intended. But we might just take all these different swirls and turns and what have you. I find it really fascinating that for you, particularly around the art, other people saw it before you did. That's one of the big surprises of my life. Not too many years ago, went to a reunion of activists I was with as a young person, we were in the leadership of anti-apartheid movement that started at Columbia University. When we got together, one of the people that I very much admire, I admire everybody in the group, said to me, Filma was the one who did the posters. Like she could always put together a banner and a poster and say, nope, you didn't do this right. Or no, why don't we move this over here? And here we need, and I was like, I was that person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I was, I had always had a memory of myself as well. You know, I was one of the people in the leadership who also, I had to work full time and I had to take care of myself. I like, I didn't have family backing me up. So I felt like everybody else had to put themselves on the line in ways that I couldn't, but they have different memories of me making banners and stuff. Okay. So being an activist wasn't something only connected to your academic endeavor, but also as an artist. That's actually how I got into activism. In college, Cesar Chavez had been organizing in Florida after his successes in California. And so I'm in Florida. I was 16 years old and I saw their documentary film, The Wrath of Grapes. And I was like, oh my God, this is happening right here in in the Tampa Bay And so I started making posters and standing on Fowler Avenue in Tampa, like asking people to like donate or they don't use, don't eat strawberries from these growers who spray people with insecticide because they won't wait till they get off the fields. That's how I did it. Poster making. And that's all pre-social media for some of the folks who are listening. That's the way you got your message out. Stand on the highway. So I I like your segue into the social activism and just even to hear that story about you being down in Florida at 16. And, And so when I think about just what I know of you and all the conversations that we've had to date, like I know that we both share the common 
commonality of being children of Caribbean immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, growing up and spending time down in, in, in living in New York City, and then that we're both sociologists. Mm-hmm. And I like to think that we share also the same interest in learning about and understanding people and the human psyche and philosophies and how the world works. And you yourself kind of talked about, well, you know, the activist spirit has always been there. Something about social justice is as a part of your core. But how did you know that? Was there something in your childhood or growing up that you were just like, yes, this is in my DNA. I know it. Yes. I have two things that I think of as my motivators. One is negative and one is positive. My father was a man to be admired, but he was—he is not someone that I look up to in every respect. He's the kind of guy that everybody loved and everybody admired, but he was extremely cruel at home mm. and abusive physically abusive with me. And he treated my sister, who's 12 months and three days younger than me, treated her completely differently. And she is a completely different person from who I am. And how do you think the abuse from your father and the differential treatment received between you and your sister impacted your perception about the world? Grossly unequal treatment of me and my sister. I think that's where the origins of my social justice questioning came in. A lot of the way I live, even in my family life, comes in. Like it was two, we were two siblings, same parents, same food, grew up in the same house, and we became such different people? That's the question I still want to answer. You know, when I first started college, my major, I did a joint major in art and psychology. And even then I was trying to be interdisciplinary. It did not work out even then. And I'm still trying to do that. But being interdisciplinary isn't readily appreciated in the academy. The academy can't really see how those things go together and they don't put the resources so that you can put these things together. But I thought if I could figure out why people are the way they are and how they express that, that's what I thought psychology and art could give me. And I had a teacher, one of the assignments was to do a self-portrait. And so I never had done anything like that before. I laid on the ground in my room and I opened the door and I had a door mirror. So I was laying on the ground, drawing myself, looking at myself laying on the ground. Uh, So it was in perspective, you know, my head is a bit, my feet are way back here and I loved it. And the guy said, you can do better than this. So I guess he thought I was a good artist, but the way he said that was like, oh, I'm like, no, I can't. I quit art after that class. You quit art because you weren't ready to embrace your ability in full at that particular time. I quit altogether. And then in psychology, I was getting A's and doing very well. And I had taken statistics. And then they were like, okay, so next semester, we're going to put electrodes in cat's heads and (laughs) portraits of mice. And I was like, no. And I quit psych. That's when I started to feel like, yeah, I'm not going to find out how the world works like that. So at this time in your journey, you set aside art, you set aside psychology, but what has been your motivation to figure out the world and your place in it? 
The other is now everybody's getting asked this classic question of when, when did you first have a black teacher? And unfortunately, too many people say never. I had a black teacher in the third grade mm. and she was amazing. And she had a style of teaching that was completely free. So my memory tells me she took all the workbook from the year and said, I need you to finish these workbooks by the end of the year. I don't really care how you do it. Just fill them all out. And I think I was done in January. It was like I could come to school and do whatever. So she used to have this music sessions where she taught us folk songs from around the world. And she played the auto harp. She taught me the auto harp. I talk about this in the memoir I'm writing, how she literally saved my life by teaching these folk songs. It seems this teacher had a major influence in your life early on. But how does this connect to your family life and your world? I have an immigrant father. So I was worldly from birth. But this woman taught me that the world can be yours. It, like, yes, we have different cultures, but the world is is a sphere. There are no boundaries for you. Whatever you want is yours. That freedom I had so young, like nine, that's probably when I was like, oh, I could be a scientist. I mean, I never got indoctrinated with that. You're just a Black girl from Brooklyn. I got from her, you're human and that's awesome. And she didn't say it. She was just like, oh, there's Bill Nash. You don't have nothing to do. And she read all her books. So come over here, learn this instrument. This is how they sing songs in Ireland. And it's just like, wow, I can I can do this. I think particularly as adults and when we're in a place of being reflective and you kind of think about the different instances in which there were people that poured positive things into us mm-hmm. or whether intentionally or not, their actions depleted things from our core and the ways in which as adults, we look back on the ways we had to rebuild ourselves. Having those two stories were very integral to who you are today, that although perhaps the internal dynamics of the home life may not have been the best or maybe for some people ideal, gave you some insight into the dynamics of human beings and shortcomings of human beings, but that you can't only be defined by your shortcomings, that there are opportunities that you can still become whole. And I think that it's lovely where for a lot of children and a lot of black and brown children, it's nice to be able to have teachers that hopefully even look like them too, Mm -hmm. empower them to feel like, yes, the world is my oyster. Like, yes, I can do that. Because oftentimes there are so many messages around us that tell black and brown children that, no, you have to stay in line. You have to do this. It's almost like you're going through life asking for permission. And she's just giving you insight that even if, let's say, home life wasn't as permissive, she was demonstrating to you that, yes, you can and you can do this. It's interesting because this teacher is someone I acknowledge in the in one of my books. So I want to just highlight that I acknowledge her Black womanhood and my Black womanhood 
it was really about the human face of possibilities, which was amazing. So I should just say, I have a Facebook page just about Bonzi Jimberry. So if anybody listening has had that teacher, let's connect because we definitely are a community of people who got saved in Queens, New York by this wonderful teacher. And I'm not surprised about sociology being a place where you can feel, not that mm-hmm. it's perfect, but as a field that allows you to be a little bit more interdisciplinary, or at least for you to marry the different interests that you have, the art and finding ways of, I can people watch and examine people. I can do some of this activism work because there's a little bit of flexibility as a discipline to allow one to do that. What was that pivotal moment that confirmed to you that, okay, I think I can balance this. I can do this work that I'm interested in doing in academia, but then I can also bring in my art or to be thinking creatively about how I can express and communicate my scholarship. I am still waiting for that moment. I'm like, yes, this is it. This, I can do that. Like the academy has not been that kind of place for me. And it's funny because I see some of the people I mentor are coming up and they're so different about the way they insist on engaging with the academy. How is it different from the way you have engaged the academy? The way I had to engage with the academy has been much different. And I think that's why I have the title schooled for the memoir. I was going to say I I was a graduate of the School of Hard Knocks, but I think I got left back. (laughs) I'm on Twitter and I look at the Black in the Ivory hashtag and I'm seeing that issue is still going on. It's really not that I found a pivotal moment that says I can do this. It's partly aging into that time of life where you just say, I'm old enough. I put in my time. I paid enough dues. Y'all can't have my soul. And it's just time and I'm doing this. So maybe the pivotal moment is coming because I'm just not having it anymore. I'm going to be in the academy doing it the way I want to do it now, damn it. I'm lucky because I'm in a position that I'm negotiating the new and ever it leads me is definitely taking me to a place where I get to be that authentic scholar, artist, activist, all three at the same time. I'm looking forward to that. Two, the road. So Vilna, what makes you feel most free? There are two things that make me free. Water is one of them. I love the ocean. I told my husband when I die, they have to scatter my ashes in the ocean. And if they pick a lake or something, I'm going to haunt them. There's something about where the sand meets the shore and the waves and the sound of it and the life that I can't, you know, I can't breathe under there, but there's so much life. Maybe I was a a sea creature in a previous life. (laughs) And then also, dancing. I love 
music, dance music. Oh my goodness. I danced my way through my twenties. And even now I need to exercise and by doing dance. Just the symbolism of water oftentimes is around rebirth or renewal or cleansing. I can see how water can be very liberating because if we feel like we're carrying a lot around Mm -hmm. and then we're venturing into spaces where you can feel like I'm being cleansed and it's being washed over on me and you get to sort of release it. I mean, that's beautiful. Oh yeah. And then gravity works differently. It doesn't pull you in the same way when you're on water. Yeah. Can release so much. Mm -hmm. I feel light in the process. Exactly. And then dancing and music in general is something that quite emotive, right? It can connect to particular memories that we have. It reminds us of situations. You can even place yourself back and feel like, oh, I can smell, taste the moment. But then the connection that we have with our bodies in the moment of listening to music is also very freeing. That feeling when somebody says, oh, that's my jam, that's elation. And then they're lost for the next few minutes. It's almost meditative, but it's so uplifting. Now, something you said I thought was really interesting around even your experience and being on Twitter and following particular hashtags, because we are in the the current climate of everything's a hashtag if you want it to be. You said earlier, as you were sort of reflecting on your own experiences, the realization that we have social media as a platform to be able to communicate and express in ways that we didn't have access to just 10, 15 years ago. How do you then show up in these spaces where you know that there is some institutional baggage and policies that infringe upon us as Black people, African descended people, as women? How do you then show up and negotiate in these spaces as an academic, as an artist? I have two answers to that. One is I'm honest and maybe that's to a fault. I want to be an honest person and I expect honesty back. My optimism, I'm an optimist and I so I always expect that, oh yeah, everybody's going to be like me and we're going to walk through our lives with authenticity and openness and, and then I'm always shocked that, wait, you lied? Oh, huh, you know who you said you were? Or didn't you promise blah, blah, blah? And I'm shocked every damn time. So the way I show up is to really try to be that honest person. I'm either, I always say I'm either honest or silent. Interesting. Silent as in self-censorship? And even when I'm silent, my face is showing you what I think (laughs) from that. I think one of the things I really care about is mentoring. I'm not really sure. Mentoring is very important in many of these spaces that we traverse. What does it mean to you? I have an explanation, but I know with students, I tell them, people are not going to tell you this, but, and then I start telling them things about the academy and how it's going to be rough and how it's going to get harder. And even after you get tenure, because the demands on the job increase, people might steal your work. And yeah, somebody's going to shut you down. Or yeah, you'll be in a meeting and somebody will say the same thing you just said 15 minutes ago. And everybody's like, yeah, great idea. And it's the death of a million paper cuts plus some backstabbing. And I don't think people tell people that. How does honesty show up for you? That honesty shows up as mentorship, where I pay back some of what Mrs. Jim Barry gave me. Here's how you 
get through and don't tell yourself no. Let them tell you no. Just think of where you want to go and let me help you try to get there. And it makes sense because earlier you had talked about the pathway and that for you, it's critically important to be on this path and you feel that you're operating from this sense of I'm being my authentic self. And so through your mentorship, that's how you're showing up to that authentically, this is what I'm giving to you. And it's to operate from a place of honesty, to operate from a place of integrity. Mm-hmm. And that you, and that's sort of the legacy that you want in that particular engagement, because that's where particularly you are as a person along your path. You're even at a place right now, even though you're still trying to figure out, is, is there a pivotal moment that I'm waiting on? But you're like, hey, screw that. I'm going for it. Sometimes it comes with experience. Sometimes it comes with age. Sometimes it's both where you just begin to feel empowered and believe in yourself. It's not that we all get recognized for what we're putting in. Yeah. I like to tell students this joke. Do you know what they call the last person in a cohort to get their PhD? Doctor. Yeah. Because it doesn't even matter. doesn't matter how how hard it is. If you don't give up, they're going to give you that PhD. Right. You just have to know what you have to do to get them to give it to you and just go do that. Let's talk about your forthcoming memoir, Schooled. What is the story about and why? Why are you telling this story? Why now? I envision several audiences for this book. The first, the person who needs to hear, hey, you can do this. All you have to do is when you're knocked down, just get up one more time. And it doesn't have to be a student. It can be anybody who needed that word of encouragement to try to find that little bit of resilience that you have. This is a resilience story. So I should say then that this book is the story of me and schooling. I was raised in New York City and I went to New York City public schools. Between college and the New York City public schools, my family moved to Florida. So I ended up in interracial school that felt so segregated because all the Black kids were tracked into into the worst classes and had a very different experience from the white kids. And I was the first Black kid to have the white kid experience. And then I went to college and graduate school, became a professor, didn't get tenure, then got tenure, and I'm a full professor. And I am now negotiating a position as an endowed chair. And I write about what that experience is. I had these really interesting engagements with schooling. I felt like it was important to talk to people who may not have those experiences. So when you say that you're interested in people understanding the diverse experiences you've had around schooling, do you mean for people to better understand academia, higher education, or something else? For example, I'm on the phone with my family who all moved to Florida and they're still there. And so they're like, oh, so what are you doing this summer? You have summer off. And I'm like, when have I ever come home and not have work? It doesn't matter that it's summer or Christmas or whatever it is. And then I have to explain, you you do realize I don't get vacation days. I can't apply to have time off in the same ways as other people because we don't get vacation days. My family doesn't understand why. 
I am working constantly, why every grad student you know is completely stressed out. And so I'm hoping that if I write this book and share it with people, those people in the first audience who need that resilience can give it to the families. No one has explained the academy to people who are not in it. And then one more audience I'm thinking of is the administrators in higher ed who talk a lot about diversity. Child of Immigrants is having a hell of a time getting through these institutions. And I don't know that administrators really understand the challenges. I'm not sure they understand the challenges faced by people in first generation who've gone to college. We are not helping enough to get these young people the supports they need. We have this idea of diversity as we just need to get some brown people, women, LGBTQ, whoever in the room, and then we got diversity. And it's like, do you have any idea how hard it is for me to get in that room? Once I'm clawing my way into the room, then I'm supposed to show up and give. And I think that idea of diversity is really flawed. And what we need to understand is these institutions aren't making way for us. It's about structuring resources so that they support people and scaffold our way into these rooms. I felt like telling the story of some of these traumas about surviving the academy or being schooled by the academy could help a lot of different kinds of people. When you talked about the resiliency, the truth telling of the academy so that those who are outside of the academy can understand and appreciate still an interesting type of mentorship to help other people understand. You know, most people tend to be myopic when we think about employment. Employment equates job. And then there's always that distinction between jobs and careers. But people have a framework of, oh, your job is a nine to five. And even for our families, oh, you're a teacher, then of course you have your summers off. Not really understanding that there is still a lot of intellectual work that you are required to engage in and that there's a particular tax when you are part of a marginalized, a historically marginalized group that the tax even feels like triple fold because that production has to be of a particular level. It has to be of a particular volume. And then the final component in terms of how you envision your audience around the admins of these institutions. I see it all over my LinkedIn where they have a new person who's the head of Mm -hmm. the provost of, of diversity, inclusion, and equity, all these beautiful titles. But then of course, then what does that really mean? How is it that structurally and policy-wise that we're implementing these things and putting them in place where we can actually effectuate the kind of change that we need to see? Well, I cannot wait to read this memoir. So tell us, where are you at in terms of your writing stage? Are you almost done? Is it under contract? So the memoir is like 95% finished and I'm struggling with two things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. One is, again, it's a very truth-telling. So I'm having to tell my stories and also avoid, you know, those delicate situations when, yeah, truth-telling can get you in a lot of trouble. So I don't know. There's an expression that, you know, if you don't want to see yourself in in a memoir, you should have treated me better. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm dealing with the rewrites of that to put things in a little more delicate context. The thing that I insist on, too, 
is telling a lot about my personal life. I mean, it's not a professional memoir in that sense. One of the things that being an academic does and graduate school teaches you is that the production of these materials. It's publish or perish. And it's your student evaluations say everything about you. And so all of your work is very performative and you are judged very harshly on these things. And you are not in the room when those judgments happen. You can literally step out when student evaluations are done and you are literally not in the room when they're discussing you for tenure then, or hiring or in promotions, any such things. So the climate is as if you don't exist as a human being. Very little understanding of you as a whole human being. You know, we're still talking about people who have their kids walk in on their Zoom meetings as if we're not all working at home with children. I totally agree. In order for us to show up in these professional spaces and to be authentic, we have to represent our whole selves. It's not just I am work individual or work identity and it's different or apart from your home life. Give an example. I was asked to give a provocation about mentoring. So I talked about mentoring in my life and when I needed it. And it contrasted that with what kind of mentor I try to be. And I said that if I am your advisor, I will be asking you about your love life. And people after the talk, or actually in the Q&A, and they're like, you don't really do that, do you? Because that's like a violation of blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yes, absolutely, I do that. I insist that the person in front of me is a whole human being. And the Academy will take 24-7 from you and expect your loyalty. And you will wake up in the middle of the night worrying about whatever it is you're doing, uh, your writing, your teaching, your, your next faculty meeting, that thing you forgot to do. And I said, and you can love books all you want. Books will not love you back. You have to go out and find love. And the idea that we don't need that and shouldn't think about that is horrendous. So I make sure that people are thinking about, if I go here, will I ever find love? Um, how Should I even ask them to talk about a partner hire? Absolutely you should. And here's how to do that. Like, don't leave your love on the table just because you need a job real bad. But that's what some of us are really doing. And thank you so much for really making it a point to say that clearly, not only to the listeners here on this podcast, but for those who will read your book, because it is obvious that these are some important lifelong lessons that you are sharing with us. Really important to me to make sure that I am trying to show up as a whole human being and making space for other people to do the same. In your efforts to go back through your revisions, maybe reframe delicate situations because not necessarily protecting the innocent, but just ensuring that balance 
in your presentation. So how do you overcome that? And even as a writer, knowing that you have your, in- your intentions on the one hand, but then on the other hand, in order for you to be fully authentic in your intentions, it requires this level of vulnerability. Well, you know, I think that is one of the ways I've really preserved myself is I think openness, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, it's people may find out something about you and say, oh, that explains it and use it against you. Well, if I'm telling you this thing, you can't use it against me. Because yeah, that's right. My dad was abusive and a bunch of people broke up with me. And I just have always gone through the world. And it's, I think it's wildly naive. I don't know how I survived this way, but it's like, if yeah, if I'm just as open as I can be, y'all can't hurt me. I have one kind of exception to that is, and that is I'm, I've always been really afraid of sharing drafts of what I've written before they're published. But see, with this memoir, it's more about the way I live. I feel like they have less to say about that than they do. Well, let's talk about your research and whether you've done this correctly or you have objectivity or whatever. We can talk about that all day. I have fewer qualms about that. I know that other people think they have the right to judge me. But with my own life, you can judge me, but that's my life and I've lived it. And, you know, you got your own to go live. So go do that. I I kind of always knew I'd write a memoir. I just didn't know when or about what. And I, and I like the why now for you, because it's apparent that the time is now to talk about these issues, mm-hmm. education slash or in parens, education, miseducation of Vilna. I think that this is maybe for you, the why now could be the fact that the story needs to be told and needs to be told now and you're ready to tell it. And so the book in and, in and of itself is writing itself. Yeah. I also think that being a child of an immigrant who I knew grew up so poor economically poor in a culturally rich society. And then I became a professor and an artist and got a PhD and wrote books and and flirting with an endowed chair. Like, my God, look, look what happened to me. Look what I did. I think having come to that platform is a natural time for reassessment. Get it, get it. Three, where we land. So Vilna, what are you most excited about personally and professionally? Are there any upcoming projects in addition to the memoir that you're wrapping up? Yeah, at this stage, I'm really excited about the ability to bring art and social science together. Finally, I'm I I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I have several projects underway that get to do that. I'm going to be teaching some visual sociology soon. So there's so much we can do that we are not really doing in social science research, like, you know, the analysis of visual culture. And I, I don't know who's doing that work, but sociologists, I think, are really primed to be able to incorporate the visual. Um, visual sociology now 
does a lot about neighborhood change. So they look at neighborhoods and how you can tell it's this ethnic neighborhood versus 10 years from now, it's another ethnicity. But that only looks at neighborhoods and only uses video and photography. When I have this study of children's books on race, ethnicity, and adoption look like? Like, what are we teaching kids when we want them to know about race? Are we teaching them that there are purple people because everybody's in the rainbow? Or <laughs> like, are we being realistic about what segregation looks like? I think these are crucial things, crucial things to talk about. So that's very exciting to me to try to bring visual into the social sciences in ways that like we can actually do research. I think we can bring some art making processes in. I haven't figured that out, but I'm gonna work on that. I'm back to painting. I'm doing, and I'm doing a self-portrait series that I'm hoping um, to have my first solo exhibition be these self-portraits. I'm working on a short book on the history of racial thought. Then after I do all that, my next big project is history of domination and oppression. Like, can I have a small idea, please? No, I guess I can't. I really think that there are ways that we need to think about oppression more broadly and not just a matter of, well, that's because of slavery or that's because of colorism or that's because of patriarchy. Like maybe there's something about the way we interact socially that we're always going to come up with ways of dominating and oppressing if we're allowing certain kinds of moral failings to take precedent in our society. I think going to be my big book, last big book. So I have started sewing. Uh, well, I've been hand sewing for a long time, but I am now like going to get into designing clothes for myself because I... I never see the clothing that I want to wear and but in the colors that I want to wear. So I think I'm going to really start blossoming in a way of self-presentation with clothing and fabric and fashion. And I can't wait. I love that because I know to myself, there's going to be an essay that comes out of that oh. experience, right? So but that's, that is more to come. And usually I ask folks if they are able to share a couple of audience takeaways that might help to inspire our listeners on their own journeys of belonging to Blackness. Do you have any parting thoughts or sage advice for folks? Yeah, I do. I really believe one of the things we have to learn is to not say no to ourselves and don't stand in your own way. I know that people say this expression, to go follow your dreams. And I, I think that's too simplistic because I think you might have a dream but not know how to get there. Or maybe you don't, you've been hit so hard you don't even know what your dreams might be. But I'm, I would say instead, just let your dreams lead you. Make sure you listen to those whispers of intuition and, you know, try to follow those to take your next step. And sometimes that next step might be a fall and then you just get back up and keep it moving. Go out, go out there, see what the world has for you. 
it can be, there can be some beautiful, beautiful things. And I, I hope they find them. And I, I just want to say, I, I, I'm so glad my path led me to you. You're a wonderful person, beautiful inside and out. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's a joy. It's always a joy to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Vilna Bashi Tretler, for sharing so much about you and your experience and your projects and your vision that have helped to shape the path in your journey of belonging to Blackness. Thank you. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.